What had happened had been a heavy, heavy downpour, and our bus uh, drove merrily into the flood, and the water washed up over the steps, and the bus stopped because uh, the engine was flooded. And we were merrily taking photos because we'd become quite, it was near the end of the trip, come quite relaxed about taking photos. And Carl, our English leader, said, it has been reported that some of you were taking photos. Any citizen can report a tourist taking photos. So it's been reported taking a photo. I will ask you now to delete those photos from your camera, because if not, an official will have to come to our rooms and check your cameras. And I don't think we'd want this, would you? Hey guys, welcome back to the Rough Guide to Everywhere Series 2. I'm so excited about this new series. We've been having conversations with people from all around the world. We're going to be taking you to Antarctica, into the Bolivian Amazon. But today, we are talking about North Korea. So this is something that I I read an article about this recently, right? That if you were in a spacecraft orbiting Earth at night, and you were to look out the window over the Korean peninsula, you would see this kind of glowing expanse of light, which is South Korea. And just north of it, you would see this ocean of inky blackness, which is North Korea, with just one pearl of light kind of beaming out from the city of Pyongyang. And I think that kind of sums it up. There's so much darkness surrounding North Korea. There's so much mystery. But there are just a few things that we do know. So we know that... In North Korean state news, Kim Jong-il was reported to have scored a perfect game of 300 the first time he ever went 10-pin bowling. We know that all North Korean men must have one of 28 state-approved haircuts. And we know that it's not the year 2017 in North Korea, it's 105, which is the number of years since the birth of Kim Il-sung. Nowadays, it's impossible to get away from news of North Korea and its fast-developing nuclear program and murky assassinations around the world and their hard labour camps. But for a country we speak and think about so much, often with anxiety attached, very few of us have actually visited North Korea or have even spoken to a North Korean person. And that's because North Korea gets like 4,000 or 5,000 tourists every year. To put it in perspective, that's how many tourists come to the UK per hour. And last year, one of those tourists to North Korea was Hilary Bratt. Now, in the first episode of The Rough Guide to Everywhere, called Just Like Riding a Bicycle, I put Hilary Bratt in the same category of kind of legendary travel writers as Paul Theroux and Bill Bryson and Dervla Murphy, and I 100% stand by that statement. She's none other than travel writing royalty. In 1972, she spent 18 months backpacking around South America and published a book called Backpacking Along Ancient Ways in Peru and Bolivia. Over 40 years have now passed, and Brat Travel Guides is still going strong, and Hilary Bratt continues to travel the world as if she was in her early 20s. So here she is. She came into the Rough Guide studio uh, to have a cup of tea and tell me about her trip to North Korea. Hilary, having worked at Brat Travel Guides for a couple of years and having kept in touch with a few of the editors there, I like to keep a close eye on what's going on at Brat. And earlier this year, I saw an announcement that North Korea was the destination of the month. 
at Pratt Travel Guides. Why so not? Can you t- can you tell me a bit more about that? <laughs> Um, well, it was because I went there in September, and uh, it's a place I'd always wanted to go. And uh, I was just mentioning to Regent Holidays at the Destinations Travel Show, and I said, oh, you know, I've always wanted to go to North Korea. And to my amazement, a few weeks later, an invitation arrived, would I like to go? Um, and they didn't even at that point talk about writing an article, but I, I wrote an article for Wanderlust and uh, a few other publications. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just so interesting. You know, it was a holiday like unlike any other holiday, as you can imagine, but as an interesting place to go. I think, you know, it absolutely tops the list. It must be up there. So to start with the logistics, so you're part of a tour group. You have to go as part of a tour group or you have to always have two guides with you. So you can go on your own, but you feel a bit silly with two guides. Mm. And obviously, it's much cheaper to go as part of a a tour group. And Regent Holidays do have the most experience. So, you know, I'm happy to give them a plug because they were terrific. And what kind of people were on the tour with you? Well, one chap had been there seven times. It was his seventh trip. Wow. And, you know, he was he was a nutter in the nicest sense. He was an <laughs> antiques dealer. He was just fascinated by North Korea. He has a complete set of army uniforms, North Korea army army uniforms, which he doesn't actually dare wear or even put out. And he collects propaganda posters. And he says he can't really explain it. But each time he goes, he sees something new. And he says it's actually so much changed. And although one wouldn't believe this reading the media, it's much more open now and much more relaxed than when he first went, which I think was seven years ago. Really? That surprised me. It would surprise everyone, I think. And then what was your itinerary? What, where exactly did you start and finish? You start, um, I was on an 18-day itinerary, so it's about the longest you can be there, which is why I wanted to do it, because I wanted to get out of Pyongyang into the countryside and see more unguarded scenes, which you can. If you're on a bus, they can't monitor everything you see. And that was really interesting. Um, But um, you anyway have, I think it was four or five days in Pyongyang and the DMZ or DMZ demilitarized zone and a few standard places. Um, But then, um, and it was actually fascinating. I don't know where to start. But I think the key thing that people need to know if they're thinking, oh, holiday in North Korea, how interesting, is... There's a lot of boredom. You know, you you have to visit the factories. You have to visit the collective farms. You have to bow in front of the statues of the great leaders, the dear leader and the great leader. And we started counting that, and it was 22 times altogether. It wasn't just the (laughs) statues. It was a mosaic. It was any depiction of them. Wow. And it became quite a a thing. We would buy flowers, and we'd take it in turns to put the flowers on the steps. And to begin with, I just sort of nodded my head but in the end my back was aching so much from all the standing around listening to how the great leader had done this and that I did a deep bow from the waist and it went towards relieving the backache. (laughs) So I think a lot of people's perspective of travel to North Korea is you don't get a particularly authentic look of of what the country's actually like so you, you need to have two tour guides with you are they so they're kind of working for the government I suppose? They, I, I think it's, it's in a way, it's a misapprehension. You see much more than the media would, would suggest that you see. 
Um, the guides, one of them was completely useless. He he spent most of the time taking selfies and <laughs> <laughs> just enjoying himself. Um, he t- he talked to us, but but uh, he was definitely number two guide. But um, I learned her first name and could pronounce it for a while, but I can't anymore. She was absolutely super and very relaxed, very funny, very... Um, very personable. You know, you'd never expect. She told us jokes, and some were funny, some weren't, mostly about President Bush, but uh, they, they were, <laughs> of course, this was pre uh, the new president, yep. pre Trump. Um, they're watching you. They're not exactly watching you, they're accompanying you. They're translating what the local guides said. Most of the local guides at each place of interest only spoke Korean. So, she was absolutely super, would um, translate this and obviously answer any questions. She did. She was always with us. I, I um, asked her if the bus could stop so I could so, photograph some flowers and she had to get out with me. I'm sure if I'd wanted to go to the loo, she would have had to follow me to the loo. Wow. Okay. Um, and actually talking of loos, uh, oh, you know, if anyone's <laughs> thinking of going to North Korea, the biggest, if you're a woman, the b- only preparation you need to do is learn to squat because oh, okay, I'm, really? I'm quite old, so my knees are quite <laughs> stiff. And most of the more public loos at, at the attractions don't have locks, which is possibly significant. Right. And so you had to be squatting on a squat loo, holding the door shut and, and coping with everything else. So fine for men, but quite a challenge That's for women. a good tip. In general, is did you find travelling as a woman there, how much of a difference is there for men and women tourists going to North Korea? No difference at all. Really? I mean, it's it's completely equal uh, for women and men. I would think the guides are as often uh, women as men, and uh, there was no difference in the way we were treated. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, okay. And then another thing, something that I've another thing that I've kind of heard. A lot of this will be things I've heard, and then you can mm. just bat them straight at me. Is that you get these kind of set up scenes in North Korea where you'll drive on your coach past a a lovely cafe with a family having the most beautiful evening together and they've got candles and they're smiling and laughing, but it's all actually been staged. Um, I don't know whether that was, there's a documentary about that or someone wrote about it, but is that something you felt? Did you ever feel like you were witnessing something that was completely staged? Surprisingly, no. Um, and, you know, when, when I talk about North Korea, I, I realise that, you know, all the time I'm undoing what the media does in, in talking <laughs> yeah. about things being staged. We um, we were there for Independence Day or, or um, one, one of the celebration days. And uh, we went to the park in Pyongyang where ordinary families were picnicking and so on. And they were absolutely not set up for us because they couldn't. It's a big park. They Mm. couldn't know who we were going to look at and and, uh, where we would be. And they were genuinely having a great time. You know, and I I really don't believe that I've been brainwashed sufficiently to think that they were when they weren't. They were playing music. They were dancing. They were picnicking. The elite live in Pyongyang, so they were people who were having a pretty good life anyway. And the little girls were beautifully dressed in local costume or princess dresses, just like at home. Yeah. Um, but also, uh, we went to another place um, in the south, Wontan, and we walked along a causeway um, to a little island and there were lots of families just dotted along there and they'd been fishing and they were barbecuing their fish. And both our guides, it was near the end of the trip, they were at the back just chatting to each other. 
And uh, we got to talk to some of the families a little. I mean, we couldn't speak a, a mutual language, but uh, we, we, I knew, uh, I learned a few words like very good and yeah. hello. And gesturing goes a And gesturing way, goes a little, yes. And they were so natural. And they were, you know, they were smiling. And, and other families that we came across, um, they smile a lot, the Koreans. And, mm. I mean, you see that from the media. The leader's always smiling. Yeah. But uh, it didn't back up the new story of misery, the new stories of misery. And I think this is the biggest surprise. And you can't really fix that. You know, when you're on a bus or, or walking um, where people aren't expecting tourists, it, it is as it is rather than as the guides want you to see it. Yeah. So that was a surprise. I'd be interested to know what their... Because, again, something else you hear is the idea that they have... that. North Koreans have very little access to news of the outside world and what people's perspectives are of North Korea from the outside. And they're in this kind of bubble. And you've actually brought in today the Pyongyang Times. So did you pick that up from when you were there? Or do you get that delivered to your house now? It was, it? <laughs> it was, well, mm, it was my favourite souvenir when I was there. And I love the uh, Pyongyang Times because it is absolutely the government line and nothing happens that isn't amazing and wonderful and no one achieves anything unless it's amazing and fantastic. One time I bought it in, in the shop and uh, one of the rules was you mustn't fold it across the leader's um, picture oh. and the uh, the shop assistant said, I'll wrap it for you. And I said, it's only a newspaper, you don't need to wrap it. She said, yes, I must because, and I didn't hear the because, but it was because the fold was uh, across the leader and someone might have seen. Wow. Can you just uh, re read one of the headings from it? <laughs> right. Well, this is the heading and every heading is, is similar. But while I was there, they were actually testing a, a, a nuclear weapon. So we were supposed to be going somewhere and the uh, road was closed and we didn't know why. <laughs> of course, they were testing the missile on it or near it. Anyway, next uh, Pyongyang Times is Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un oversees successful SLBM test fire. And there he is. You've seen the pictures anyway in our modern media, beaming terribly happily with, with lots of soldiers around him. And the picture to the right is of an explosion. So, um, yes, that, that'll be... I'm sure they're having a wonderful time at Pyongyang Times. No, I wish I could subscribe to it because I'd love yeah. to see what they're writing. You see, the thing is, it works. They have no... Uh, and this is something we know, and it's true. They have no link with the outside world. We mm. couldn't bring in our mobile phones. Um, we couldn't access the internet. They do have computers, but the only internet they have is is their own network. Right. So I'm sure that they do. Um, it's pretty difficult to keep people completely away now from <clears throat> the internet and, and so on. But I would say the average person honestly knows very little about the outside world. And you have to remember that they've been, um, it's been a whole generation since the end of the Korean War and uh, the partition and, and uh, North Korea being as it is. So a whole generation has grown up thinking that they're the happiest, luckiest, most fortunate people in the world. And I think it works. You know, if we're told how miserable we are all the time, <laughs> particularly if we read the tabloids. So we think, oh, yes, now I come to think of it, I'm pretty miserable. But, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you're told how happy you are, um, it probably rubs off. Yeah. So kind of ignorance is bliss type mm. thing. Mm. 
you reckon that's how's the I know there's kind of a social hierarchy in North Korea and like you said in Pyongyang you get the super rich but then probably when you get more rural there is more poverty and I know mm. was it in the 90s there was an enormous famine is that mm. something that's still going on now or do you think there is more of a kind of equalization in society well it's it's a good um it, it's a good question because it's always trotted out by the media that the people are destitute and starving. And I asked our guide, I mean, I can't, after one visit, I can't pretend to know everything yeah, about yeah, North obviously. Korea. But our English guide, uh, Carl Meadows from Regent, who was fantastic. He's be, he goes two or three times a year, every year for the last uh, 15 years or so. So he really does know his stuff. And he said, honestly, I don't think the starvation now. He said in the 90s, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, suddenly the aid stopped and there was real starvation. And I'm sure there is hunger in the outlying places that we never got to see. But what we saw from the bus, and we were going all over the place, we saw well-tended fields, you know, good crops, good harvests, and the houses that are provided for the workers, which I'm sure the ones that line the road are better than the ones yeah. further inland. Yeah. I mean, who knows what I didn't see? And, you know, I do sound more and more like a brainwashing victim <laughs> when I talk about North Korea. But I think I would believe, Carl, because we would hear one thing from our guide, and we had plenty of opportunity then to talk to Carl and say sort of what actually do you think is happening. And he said he would be surprised if there was starvation now, but he may be wrong. Yeah. So you've so there's the Brat Guide to North Korea. Um, oh. And obviously the whole point of a guidebook with both Rough Guides and Brat Guides is for independent travellers, really. Um, but this is a whole different type of guidebook, isn't it? Because it's not the kind of thing you just shove in your backpack and then, I don't know, get on a coach and maybe look up a backpacker's hostel. It's It's more of a, I suppose it must be more of a textbook or it's more of a historical piece of, of text about North Korea. It, it is. And uh, although it has the sort of places to stay, um, the author, Robert Willoughby, knows um, that you you can't choose where you stay. Mm. And also, um, because it has an alternative view of history, the history you're taught in North Korea is a little different from the history that's set out in the guide. And it is excellent on history. I must say, I was reading it on the train coming up just to uh, get prepared. <laughs> um, but you're not allowed to take it in. And oh, had really? I tried, yes, and we're told, don't, don't try. So actually, I brought it, you... Uh, fly into Pyongyang from Beijing and I left it at the hotel in uh, Beijing and then picked it up when I came back right. uh, because I wanted to have it for part of the journey. So, you know, that tells you that you you mustn't even suggest there's a different version of history from, from theirs. So would they confiscate it off you <coughs> in They the would airport? have confiscated it, yes, yes. Wow. Recently, apparently the first, um, I think it's the uh, third edition now, uh, the first edition was allowed in, and I think then some government official read the history and thought, oh, no, this isn't quite right. <laughs> did they know? When you went, Did was it flagged that you were a publisher and a journalist? Well, that's. Um, I was asked by Regent not to tell the rest of the group 
who I was. And, you know, I was just uh, a retired person. Did well, you have a pseudonym? Um, uh, <laughs> no, I, I was Hilary Bratt, but no, no one knew who I was anyway. Um, but obviously, Carl, you, you have to sign a document saying you're not a journalist. And I phoned Carl and I said, but, you know, you know who I am. And he said, I, you know, I talk to the North Korean officials all the time. I, I can make sure you get in. It's just that it has to look, you know, they have to say this. But he said, don't worry. And actually, the great thing, you know, he got the visa. They, they get the visa for you. It's less less hassle than almost anywhere else you go because everything is done for you. You yeah. can't make a decision. That's quite nice. Did you feel while you were there because of that, because you were kind of not sneaking in, but, you know, you'd got in as a journalist, were you at all worried at any point? Because that's the kind of thing where you hear these stories of people who go in and then they get sent to a prison or, you know, terrible things have happened to tourists going to North Korea. So were you worried about that? Well, before I went, I was worried. I remember asking Carl. He suggested that I phone him. And I thought, oh, yes, you know, that, that, that's because any email could be intercepted. But I think it's just because it was quicker. And I said, um, <clears throat> first of all, I said, might the uh, hotel rooms be tapped? And he said, no, honestly, they don't have the money to tap the, the hotel rooms. And uh, he he said that, you know, I said sort of, I, I'm worried about getting into trouble because you read so much of this. And he said the North Koreans treat tourists as honoured guests. And if they behave like honoured guests, you'll be fine. He said you have to be deliberately willful to get into trouble in North Korea. And I always remember that. I mean, the stories we've read, you know, if you try and rip a poster off or... or uh, make comments in public about the great leaders or behave inappropriately, you are actually asking for it. You know, we, we do have control over our own actions. Yeah. And if we get very drunk and do something silly, it is actually our fault in a country like North Korea. Yeah. So we were all behaving very well. And I, I do remember the anxiety. There's one chap, uh, Tony, who was very, very jokey. He couldn't, he was very funny, but he couldn't resist telling jokes all the time. And our most solemn moment, which everyone has, not moment, it lasted all day, was to see the mausoleum where the two leaders are embalmed. And I said, you know, Tony, please, no jokes. But uh, the interesting thing is we were there with a lot of Koreans and there was absolutely no temptation to giggle. They were so solemn and so genuinely solemn because this is another thing you hear, oh, you know, the tears are fake. I honestly don't believe they are. You know, they've been brought up. They, these leaders are deified. And if you think what we're like with Princess Diana, you know, she was deified. And yet, you know, we knew the sort of um, down story to her as well as the up story. So um, the, the North Koreans really do love their leaders. And I know it, it sounds bizarre to us, but they do. So this uh, trip to the mausoleum, we weren't going to giggle because the North Koreans we were with were taking it so seriously. So we did our bowing and we did, we were very carefully, we were behaving so carefully. Yeah. But it was, it was fascinating because of the, uh, the way the North Koreans are. Yeah, no, that is fascinating. Mm. Was there an instant I read in one of your articles with you'd all taken photographs of a flood or was it a some kind of natural disaster had happened? That's that's a very interesting point because had that not happened, I would have been even sunnier about the country. I mean, I would have been uh, <laughs> in, in great disrepute uh, here for being so positive. But um, it did tell us um, 
it showed us the real North Korea. And what had happened had been a heavy, heavy downpour, torrential monsoon-type rain. And the little town we were going through was completely flooded, as you see everywhere, as our towns get flooded, as any town gets flooded. And our bus uh, drove merrily into the flood and the water washed up over the steps and the bus stopped because uh, the engine was flooded. And here we were in the middle of a flood. And uh, the poor Koreans, I mean, they almost all, almost no cars, no private cars. So they had their bicycles and they were wading through this chest deep water, carrying their uh, bicycles or climbing up the uh, bank with their bikes. And we were merrily taking photos because we'd become quite, it was near the end of the trip, come quite relaxed about taking photos. And um, in the end, I mean, it was all a whole chapter of, of mishaps because then uh, a lorry tried to tow us out by the front bumper, which then ripped away. <laughs> um, but there were two interesting things. First of all, our two guides were terrified. You know, they were shouting all their guard had come down. They were shouting at each other, shouting at the driver. They were really frightened of the repercussions. And when we got back, and they rescued us very quickly, it was extremely efficient, much more than it would have been in this country. We we were taken back to the hotel. And Carl, our English leader, said, um, I think it was when we were on another bus going somewhere else, he said, it has been reported that some of you were taking photos and any citizen can report a tourist taking photos. So it's been reported taking a photo. I will ask you now to delete those photos from your camera. So we reluctantly deleted because they're bloody good photos, you know. Yeah. <laughs> really, really interesting. And later he said, I just want to make sure you have deleted all those photos because if not, an official will have to come to our rooms and check your cameras. And I don't think we'd want this, would you? And so we made sure they're all deleted. And so, you know, there was North Korea just living up to its reputation and seeing the genuine fear that that the guides had, that the driver, who we never saw again, um, it is... It is a pretty uh, unpleasant place if things aren't going right, I'm sure. Because that could, refl- that could, I guess the first people to get the rap for that would be the guides and the driver because it would be, why have you allowed the tourists to see any kind of weakness? Exactly, in, in exactly. And this is one thing that Carl said, and this, is, this made a great impression, I think, on all of us. He said, if any of you are stupid and, and do something that you shouldn't, like leaving the hotel, which you couldn't do without a, a guide being with you, and you weren't supposed to leave it anyway, um, if one of you tries to sneak out of the hotel or does something like that, you may not get into trouble, but your guide will, and you wouldn't want that. And absolutely, that was the best message. It wasn't the risk to us, it was the risk to the guides. Just a very quick note to let you know that we've got some exciting news here at the Rough Guide to Everywhere. We've been shortlisted for a Lovey Award for the best talk show slash interview podcast. We're down to the last four, and now it's down to the public vote. So you can register your vote by going on bit.ly forward slash vote rough guides. That's bit.ly forward slash vote rough guides, all one word. And we would love to have your vote. Uh, the deadline is Thursday, the 5th of October. So get voting, people. And remember, you have to validate your vote through your emails after you've done it. Now, back to Hillary. As kind of the queen of independent travel... How does it feel to not be able to leave a hotel? 
I actually loved it. It shows how old I'm getting. <laughs> we the hotels are huge and opulent. Um, we'd usually eat very well, by the way, at sort of seven thirty-eight, and then um, we had Scrabble. You know, we we brought entertainments, yeah. and the beer is very cheap. So, and one hotel that was fantastic. They had. Uh, ten pin bowling, so oh, right. we went ten pin bowling. So very often there were entertainments in the hotel, yeah. and uh, I I didn't mind. I wouldn't like it every time, but it no. was quite fun this time. If it was, I would have been. I would have wanted to have got out and explored and walked around. And you could look out of the windows, yeah. and they didn't uh, confiscate my binoculars. I asked if I could bring binoculars, and they said yes, no problem, because yeah. I like bird watching genuinely. So uh, I brought them for that. Um, Yes, it's it's surprising. I didn't get itchy feet. One time, actually, and it was lovely, and I remember this, we went to a ski resort for a 10K run. Can you believe it? It was supposed to be a half marathon and a marathon, but not enough people entered for the half marathon. And three members of our group, our guide, our male guide, um, the English guy, Carl, and one chap, um, who'd be, the, the chap who'd been there seven times, mm. they all entered for the 10K. And it's a huge hotel. And I said, sort of, can I follow the route and, and see what they're doing? And the uh, the uh, Korean guide said, yes, that's fine. And I actually didn't have anyone with me. And I felt quite sort of, ooh, you know, where are my minders? I, I felt quite insecure wandering yeah. around by myself. <laughs> but it was really nice because the runners, the Korean runners, I could greet them all. And and, uh, and there were quite a few foreigners there who yeah. I could greet. And I did feel this is so nice, you know, just to feel that I'm being like a normal tourist rather than um, minded all the time. Mm. Did you see, I mean, it sounds like there's quite a lot of parallels just thinking uh, when I went to Cuba, you get all of these propaganda posters and a mm -hmm. lot of it is and specifically anti the United States. Did you see any of that while you were there? All the time. Um, yes. I mean, the most horrific thing. And I'm, um, I was going to say quite a pacifist. I am a pacifist. You know, mm. I really hate anything to do with war. And uh, we, you have to go to the War Museum. It's, it's got a longer title, which I forget, the Protection of the Fatherland or something. And it's massive. I mean, in, in um, ground area, it's, I think, one and a half times the size of Buckingham Palace with its grounds. It's absolutely huge, with huge life-size dioramas. Um, of the Korean War. And one of the dioramas that we were supposed to admire was a group of dead American soldiers having their eyes picked out by crows. Wow. You know, and this is what the children are, are learning. And our guide, she said with great pride, she said, yes, America is our sworn enemy. And uh, as we know, she's not wrong there. Yeah. Were there any Americans in your group? The worm. They are allowed in, but I, I think you'd feel very uncomfortable being American, actually. You, you'd have to have a very thick skin. I did meet, interestingly, an American doctor who was working for a Christian mission. And we got to talk to him a bit. And he was obviously very careful. He didn't know if he was being overheard. But he said, you know, obviously, we're not allowed to... Um, <clears throat> proselytize, you know, uh, but they do appreciate our work. Okay. And he said they're lovely people and, and so on and so forth. Um, and it must be uncomfortable to be an American. But, you know, if you're sent by God, it's um, it, it's OK. <laughs> Something I've read about, oh, I've read a quite an opinionated article on, I think it was in The Independent, 
was someone challenging the ethics of going to North Korea as a tourist. The idea being, I suppose, you are giving money to the state, and if you if if there's agreement that there's it's a barbaric state or it's a dictatorship or you know, they're warmongers and all of the stuff that you read in the media, do you think that there is a responsibility on people to not visit and therefore not pump money into their pockets? Well, now, this is a question I've been asked for the last 40 years, yep. <laughs> starting, I think, with Chile, which I went to under the Pinochet regime, and South Africa, where I worked during apartheid. Um, I'm absolutely sure that the good we do in meeting ordinary people, and even North Korea, we did at least greet you know, and, and talk to some ordinary people, outdoes any harm that we do by paying into the government. And I think the interesting thing is that it makes you, I mean, it is true that travel broadens the mind. You know, Korea, I knew nothing about the Korean War. You know, none of us does, you mm. know. And and actually something about the Korean War, I, I now read the press thinking, well, you know, look at the other side. One quarter of their population was killed in the uh, Korean War. Um, Pyongyang was completely flattened. Three million uh, North Korean civilians died. You know, and that's never never mentioned. And, uh, you know, of course they hate America. Of course they hate the UN, which was also part of the Allies supporting South Korea. So it does help give you a more balanced view. You know, it's the same with Chile, same with South Africa. None of these places where I say, oh, the regime's wonderful. I wouldn't say that of North Korea, but at least I understand why it is the way it is much more than I would have done. And I probably treat the media with more scepticism than than I would have done. And that can only be a good thing. On that front... How how are you feeling about what's happening right now? I mean, I imagine between right now and us putting this episode out, there'll be a number of more missile tests and other kind of escalations in, in the tensions. But do you feel like the anxieties that are being put upon us in Britain and the US and the Western world are fair? And do you think they're exaggerated? Well, it is bizarre, isn't it? Because I grew up in the Cold War and um, when we were developing nuclear weapons, the Russians were, you know, the whole arms race. And the term then was the balance of power. And we were all told, you know, this is, this is why we keep Trident, all the rest of it. If we have nuclear weapons, then no one will attack us. But we don't think that little Korea, North Korea, only the size of England, um, isn't worried that America, which is quite good at invading people if, if they don't like them, if they're not nuclear powers, we're surprised that they want to keep the balance of power. And, you know, I think it is, I really believe, um, and if there's a nuclear holocaust tomorrow, I'll be proved wrong, but um, I don't believe that um, uh, the North Korean regime would be stupid enough to attack even South Korea, but they definitely don't want to be attacked by America. And by making a huge song and dance about the nuclear weapons, it does show their enemies, um, that they have the power to wreak quite a lot of of damage with nuclear weapons should they be attacked. So I'm much less worried than the rest of the world. I can't understand why Trump is taking the attitude he does, but, you know, not many of us understand Trump. Um, 
But, you know, I, I feel that it's defense, not attack, and they just won't attack. And unless America goes completely bananas and decides to take out their, their missile center, which would be incredibly stupid, but who knows? Um, I'm, I'm not worried. I just think I can't believe this is happening because, uh, you know, just ramping up the aggro is That's so it. extraordinary. It feels like it could have been avoided if, if, if they'd kept going along the lines of Obama of trying to talk and sanctions, like light sanctions, rather than just the escalation, yes. the rapid escalation of it is actually unreal. It's almost like... He wants, it's some kind of tactical thing where he wants to do it in order to show that he's powerful to his own supporters. I don't know. The best journalist to read is Richard Lloyd Perry in The Times. He's the only one I've read who absolutely has his finger on. He understands North Korea and he's he's always worth reading. And the last thing I read from him, which I think was a couple of days ago, was that he thinks that Kim is testing Trump because Trump, you know, he's promising fire and hell and damnation, but of course he can't do it, you know. So it's a sort of test to show his Trump's inadequacy. And I think, I don't think Kim is stupid, you know. I I think he's called um, irrational, but I don't think he is. And what I hope is happening, and I'm I'm a terrible optimist, so I always (laughs) think that good things are going to come. Perhaps there's diplomacy going on uh, behind the scenes because the outcome surely everyone wants is for a trade-off. Okay, we'll stop our missile testing for a stop of sanctions, peace talks, talk towards reunification, which is actually impossible, but both sides want it. Um, Maybe there's a subtext that we don't know and all this uh, hoo-ha is is just... um, to make us think that there isn't a subtext. Yeah, you'd hope so. (laughs) I hope so too. (laughs) So will you be going back to North Korea at any point? I don't think I would. Um, I would have done, actually, if I were if I were younger and could manage a day's trekking because uh, it's just a bit too far, sort of uh, 15 kilometres in a day. But Regent are now doing trekking holidays in North Korea. Mm. And that would be fabulous because there you're right out in the countryside. Beautiful trails because everyone has a job and one of the jobs is to maintain these trails with, with paving and everything else. And that would be fabulous. Also for a chance for some bird watching, wildlife viewing and so on. Yeah. But um, I wouldn't go back to see Pyongyang again and do my 22 bows again and so on because it was fascinating one time. But uh, that's enough. Too many bows for one trip. Too many bows (laughs) for one trip. And then finally, where's your next trip to? Have you got anywhere booked? Well, at the moment, I'm researching Devon. So my next trip tomorrow is, uh, or day after tomorrow, is Dartmoor <laughs> to finish some research there. I'm doing my slow guide, updating slow guide to South Devon and Dartmoor. And I love living in Devon. So um, I'm happy to stick to that for a while. Lovely. Hilary, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, Greg. Hearing what Hilary has to say about North Korea, I think the real truth is that loads of people, the vast majority of people, would find it incredibly, overwhelmingly nerve-wracking and claustrophobic experience to go to North Korea. Like the very idea of going to a hotel and looking out the window and knowing that you can't leave the hotel is something that I would really, really struggle with. But that's the thing about Hillary. She's got this kind of refined and nuanced and open-minded view of travel, which allows her to see things in a slightly different way to everyone else, I think. And I think travel in general is as much about 
personal experiences and having a good time as it is about simply opening up conversations and contact between people from completely different backgrounds. So even if it was this fumbly sign language conversation, I think Hillary's interactions with the people she met in North Korea and her brigade since she's got back to kind of portray the country in a slightly different, slightly more balanced way will bring at least a few glimmers of light to this relationship that's shrouded in so much darkness. Thank you so much for listening and particular thanks and love to Hilary Bratt for coming all the way into Rough Guide Studios. Now remember you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your shows and it means you won't miss an episode of Series 2. And if you give us a five-star rating, I will personally buy you a beer one day. Huge thanks to my producer Alana Chance, to my assistant producer Katie Callan, plus Keith Drew and Georgina D from Rough Guides. And one last time, remember, vote for us in the lovies, people. See you soon. <laughs>